Father, thank you so much for today. You've granted to us a gorgeous day out. I pray that you teach us now in this hour together. Open hearts and minds and help us to understand. Thank you so much for your son who died to redeem us. And thank you for the eternal life we have through him and the, the privilege of serving you and knowing you. We just thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're talking about the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. And we had our little introduction last week. Um, some of the things we are going to be talking about in this particular topic are the meaning, its origin, and we did really cover those pretty well last week, I think. We're going to talk about its nature, the nature of the church, that's what we're going to really spend our time on today. Its purpose, why is the church here? What are we supposed to be doing as a church? Um, the symbols of the church, the um, vine and the branches, the building of God, the bride and the groom, sheep and uh, shepherd. Um, there are several pictures in the New Testament of what the church looks like. And then um, we're going to talk about its organization. We'll talk about elders, pastors, deacons. And uh, the topic everybody wants to know about, the role of women in the church. We're going to even talk about that one. And uh, we're going to talk about its ordinances. All right? And what communion and baptism is all about. So we're going to really give a good overview of what the doctrine of the church is. Um, we made the, we made the uh, statement last week that really when you look at church, it means assembly, group of people. And in the New Testament, it's talked about a group of born-again people. That's what the church is. It's a group. Um, it was used in secular Greek to even refer to um, a, a civic group where people would come together in order to pass laws. They would have the assembly, the ecclesia in, in Greek um, cities. And uh, we talk about the origin of the church, and really this is going to really making land different in different ways. Um, if you say the church began with, uh, for example, Abraham, you're going to wind up with a very different understanding of what the church is and the purpose of the church and the future of the church than you will if you say the church started in Pentecost. And we talked about that last week. Um, let's talk about the nature of the church. This is where we really want to spend our time this week. By the way, is there any questions from last week? Because we, we really did a big flyover of this whole doctrine. Is there any questions about what we talked about last week? I asked several people after the class, was I clear? Because we just covered so much stuff. Um, so I know you'll all stop me if you have questions. So The nature of the church. This is very important. One, one, of, the, one of the great watershed... Uh, issues in the doctrine of the church and ecclesiology is what is the church. We talked about that last week. What, what does that group mean? And uh, if you say that Israel and the church, we talked about this last week, if Israel and the church are really the same entity, in other words, in the Old Testament you have the people of God, Israel, and we all know that God worked through that people, right? That was his chosen people. And if that has come to be the church in the New Testament then you're going to wind up with a very different understanding of church. You're going to wind up with a very different understanding of the doctrine of end times than you will if you see them as two distinct entities. All right? It's very important. This, this is really a watershed idea here. Because last week we talked about those who are from the covenantal theology view, covenant theologians, covenant theology, and that would be some, you're Presbyterian, um, you're Reformed. A lot of those are covenant um, some big names would be like on R.C. Sproul, 
this covenant, uh, they would say that no, uh, when Israel rejected their Messiah, God was done with them as a people. And so what has happened is God has now turned to the church. The church has replaced Israel in God's plans. So now God is working through the people, his people, which is the church. And Israel is finished, kaput, done. They, 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 they blew it. They, they had their chance, they blew it, they lost it. So now what God has done is all those promises that God gave Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God, we get them. The church inherits all the promises of blessing in the Old Testament. We are the people of God. And God will never again turn to Israel. In fact, um, because Israel exists today, it's totally irrelevant to the plan of God. It doesn't matter whether Israel exists or whether they don't exist, whether that nation is there or not there. It's not going to at all impact the plan of God. And we're going to sort this out a little bit further when we get into eschatology. We're going to sort out all the different views that fall out of this. But the 20,000 foot view here is that they would say Israel and the church are the elect of God. The church has taken the place of Israel. Um, what they do with that is they spiritualize it or allegorize it. Okay. Um, let's just take a five-minute detour here. We didn't talk in here about her, something called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is uh, the science and art of biblical interpretation. How do you interpret the Bible? And there are two major camps in biblical interpretation. There's what we call the grammatical historical hermeneutic. What, is, what do you think that means? Grammatical historical or literal. What do you think that means? You interpret the Bible literally, yeah. It's, it's a little, you know, if the Bible says blah, 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 okay, that's what it means, I understand it, that's what it says, I'm good with it, all right? So, when you interpret the Bible literally, and it says, for example, that God is, that Christ is going to rule from Jerusalem, how do you interpret that? It's going to rule from Jerusalem, I mean, that's what it says, right? And if it says that God is going to restore his people to the land, how do you believe that? Well, yeah, that's what he said. In fact, when you, if you ever do a study of the minor prophets, most all of the minor prophets, and almost all of them, God says, you know, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to remove you from the land. I'm going to send you off into captivity. But in the last days, I'm going to bring you back to the land. All right, so how would you interpret that if you were literal hermeneutic? Well, the people that got sent out, right, who are what? Israel. They're the ones that are going to... Come back, Israel. So the Israel that went out is going to be the people that come back. You interpret it literally. But the second camp is called the um, allegorical camp or the spiritual camp. What they do is they say, well, you, you don't necessarily interpret the Bible literally because the Bible is full of pictures, it's full of symbols. So what they would do is they say, well, the, the Israel there is not really the physical Israel. You need to see Israel as the people of God. And now we are the people of God. So Israel is not really ethnic Israel. It's the people of God, Israel. All right, that's just a simplified way of looking at it. But they would allegorize it. They would spiritualize it away. So when it talks about um, being of the seed of Abraham, they would see that allegorically, not literally. Okay? And, there's, and really, uh, it's interesting. When you talk to some of these people that are from the, the Reformed background, they admit, you know, if, if we interpret the Bible literally, we're going to wind up 
believing in a future for Israel, but we don't want that, so we're going to interpret it literal or allegorically. All right. Now, where did this all come out of? How, how did this all sort out? Why is it that there's this large group of, and these are evangelical Christians. These are not unbelievers. These are believers, all right? They're going to heaven. They're going to be there, okay? But how is it that they wound up with this view that the church and Israel are the same thing? Well, where it came from is it came out of the medieval church, really, is where it came from. What had happened with Augustine back in the 300s, he really started this. Augustine was the one that came up with this concept of Israel or as the church being the replacement for Israel. Sometimes it's called replacement theology. Where Israel, where, where, what used to be Israel is now the church. And the church is to be an influence in the world and take over the world, so to speak, and rule the world. And that was their view. And then that was, that was absorbed into the medieval Roman Catholic Church. That, that theology was absorbed in over a period of years. All right? And so what happened then, at the time of the Reformation, you have this Roman Catholic Church that says we are to be the sovereign over the... In fact, the Pope is to be sovereign over all people. And if you read medieval history, you know that you know, the Pope said, you know, if you don't go along with what I say, we're going to withhold um, all the rights in, in this particular... Area. So if you're, if you're a king and you don't go along with the Catholic Church, they would stop doing communion, they would stop doing baptism, they would stop doing things to try and make you or force you as a king to follow the Pope. All right, this is historic. This, you can read about this. And the, the church saw itself as the, and the Pope as the sovereign representation of Christ on the world, and so all secular power should be under the Pope. Martin Luther pops out of that, and Martin Luther understands correctly that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. He got that right. He, and that was, that was the most important thing he got right, right? That's the Reformation. He understood that. And he understood correctly the, the concept of the depravity of man. He understood the doctrine of God, theology proper. He had a high view of God, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit. He got all that right. But what he inherited from the Roman Catholic theology is the concept of the church being a civil force. Do you understand? And, and I wrote a paper on this, so I, I did a lot of research when I was studying this. Um, what had happened about the time Martin Luther made his break with the Roman Catholic Church, you had the Peasant Revolt in Germany. Anybody ever hear of the Peasant Revolt? Yeah, see there's a couple of them. And what happened in the Peasant Revolt, part of it is they took over the city of Marburg, Germany, and one of the guys said, this is going to be the new Jerusalem. This is the, this is the millennium. This is the kingdom. Jesus Christ is going to come back and rule. It was called Kiliasm. I'm giving you a lot of history here. I'm sorry, but it'll all make sense. Anybody know Latin? Kilia? What's Kilia? Thousand, okay? So the idea is, Kiliasm is our understanding of the millennium. It's called Kiliasm. And what happened is this, this sect or this group of people took this concept and said we are going to overthrow all the secular powers and establish the kingdom of God. All right? And we're going to call that, and, that's, and they said Marburg is the new Jerusalem basically. And of course the civil authorities came in, crushed it, and that slaughtered the peasants basically. 
And so Martin Luther says, you know, if I go along with this concept of a future for Israel, there's going to be a millennium. I'm going to be identified with that group, and that's not going to be a good thing. So he never followed through. He never dealt with this whole concept of the future of Israel. And so when Martin Luther came out of Roman Catholicism, what he did is he brought along this concept of the church being Israel. That's what he brought along. And that was codified in the great Christian creeds. The Westminster Confession has this thing codified in it. All right? And so what happens is any church denomination that uses the Westminster Creed really as its base confessional has this concept of the church being Israel, of no future millennium. Did that make any sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right? And, and again, I'm going at this, you know, 20,000 feet up, but you can go study this on your own. I think on my website I have a paper on this whole concept of, that I wrote back in college when I was there, where it, it said, you know, how is it that Martin Luther got all these other doctrines right, and yet he wound up with this covenantal view that basically says the church is Israel, and it came out of Roman Catholicism. They never got around to re-examining that doctrine, that teaching. And so before they could re-examine it, it was codified into the creeds and they just carried it along. What they did get right is the doctrine of salvation. That was right. But they never went back and explored that other concept. You're going to say something, Barry? Uh, date the uh, Reformation for us? So, 1500s. Early 1500s. Yeah, I think it's 1590. No, it's not that. Or it's 15... 14, somewhere along that, is when he nailed his thesis on the wall. It's like 1514. Because at the same time, Henry yeah. was going through his break. Right. The, uh, it's the early 1500s is when this happened. All right. So that is why, for example, in, in the reform circles, you have this concept of the church being Israel, which comes out of, which is going to color not only your view of the church, what the church is all about, but it's also going to color how do you view Israel? How do you view the millennium. How do you view, is there going to be a future for Israel? Is there going to be a literal return of Christ to establish a kingdom? Is there going to literally be him ruling and reigning from Jerusalem like he promised? Is there going to be a literal fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies regarding God bringing Israel back and restoring them to the land and making them his jewel again? Is that all going to be, is that all going to be um, fulfilled? Or, as they would say, it's fulfilled spiritually in the church. All right? And then, for example, um, when they talk about, and we're gonna, we'll get to more of this when we get to eschatology, but, you know, I say, well, what does it say in Re Revelation? It says Satan is bound. Well, I heard a message from one of these boys that said Satan is bound even now. He's bound right now. And I said, wow, you know, you really missed that one. I mean, he looks pretty free to me. I don't understand how he's bound. And then I heard uh, another guy um, talk about how the church is slowly taking over the world and how how, you know, in the next 200 years, the church is just going to become this massive influence and we're going to Christianize the whole planet. And I said, I don't know what he's smoking, but I'd like to find out what it is and get some. Because it doesn't look like we're taking over the world for Jesus. I don't know about you, but it doesn't look that good for the church. Um, but this is their theological view, their theological mindset. And it comes out of, is the church Israel? Is it the same thing? Or are, they, are there two distinct peoples of God? All right? Do you understand why this is important? Because it's going to make you land different spots depending on how you view this. Okay? So when you look at this concept, is the church Israel? 
we say, no, it is not Israel. If you take a literal, study, a literal understanding of Scripture, you literally interpret for what it says, you find that there are two distinct peoples of God. In the Old Testament, God worked through his people, Israel. That was a national identifiable group. In the New Testament, he works through the church, which is made up of all groups of people, all races, all, 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 being, all different kinds of backgrounds are all in the church. It's, it's a singular body. And it started at Pentecost, it's going to end at the rapture. It has a beginning, it has an end. It's a self-contained group of people, distinct from Israel. And how do you know this? Well, if you just look at some things, the promises to, yeah, Every once in a while, I catch some people's attention. You said, you said that the, the church now, when we're in, started at Pentecost and ends at the rapture. Yeah. What happens to any who are, find their way to God or whatever after the rapture? They are not considered part of the church. They're still redeemed. They'll still be in heaven, but they're not part of that church. The church is a distinct body. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians. It's a mystery. What does it mean to be a mystery? It was once hidden, now it is revealed. All right? It's something that the Old Testament doesn't talk about. And that's why, you know, when you go to the Old Testament, and, and you know, again, what, what depends on what uh, group you're with. You might pick up a Bible like a Geneva Study Bible from the Reformed background. It talks about, you know, God speaks to the church in the wilderness throughout the Old Testament. It's like God speaking to the church. Well, why do they say that? Because to them, Israel and the church are the same thing. So they see the church throughout the Old Testament. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 is the church is a mystery. What does it mean to be a mystery? They didn't know about it in the Old Testament. Now, there are certain veiled references that you can find. There's some hints. But there's, it's not, God does not clearly say, hey, there's, oh, by the way, you know, there's going to be this 2,000-year period where I'm going to be working through this thing called a church. It, it's not in the Old Testament. It's not there. The Old Testament sees Israel as the people of God. And this is what throws the covenant theologians. Because they say, well, it's not in the Old Testament. Of course it's not. That's what Paul says. It's not. Yeah. Just as the post-rapture person gets saved is redeemed, the pre-synagogue person, uh, all the people in the Old Testament and other earths who knew the Lord or who you know, had what they had because they didn't have Jesus yet, uh, are also redeemed. Right. So it, it, it doesn't matter whether we're talking pre-Pentecost or post-rapture. The church, the people they're in, versus the people who are redeemed are not always one and the same. No, they're, they're redeemed. Internally, we're going to all be redeemed. Right. But I mean, but I there's different not groups. one and the same, they're not always the church as in... Yeah. See, what you have, this, this here is the church. This is the church age. We call it the church age. We're gonna, we'll sort this out more when we talk about our eschatology, all right? But it's important to understand the, the background here. What the church age is, this is a fancy word I'm going to give you that you can wow people with. Somebody asked you, what do you study in, church, in Sunday school? They say, well, I studied this word, all right? It's called an intercalation. That's just a fancy word, which means a break in the calendar. All right? When you look at the Old Testament, what did the Old Testament prophets see? 
When you look at Isaiah, Isaiah 65 is a great one. Remember when Christ picked up the scroll and read it? And he, he stopped partway through? Well, if you, look, if you were you know, a Jew living 100 B.C., you'd, you'd have read that as a complete prophecy, right? Well, the Messiah's going to come, he's going to do this, 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 and then he's going to establish a kingdom, you know, make, uh, restore the cities that are laid waste, yada, yada, yada. He's going to do all of that. And you would have understood it as that. But Christ says, no, there, there's, there's, there's a break in the middle of this thing. There's a part A and a part B, and there's a break in the middle. That's called the church age. It was a mystery. They didn't know about it in the Old Testament. So if you were back here as an Old Testament prophet, and you're looking ahead, what do you see? Well, you see all of this, and you see all of that. But you don't see that. Do you understand? You don't see this. It's not that... It, and, and what Paul's trying to say is that, you know, God's not obviating his promises. There is going to be a restoration. There's going to be a future. There's going to be a kingdom. But what you didn't understand is God had in his plan this period of time called the church, which is a mystery. It was once hidden. Now it's revealed. Now we know about it. That he's working through a people, Gentile and Jew, a distinct body. And that's the church age. And remember when Christ was going to ascend? What did, they, what did the disciples ask him as Christ was ready to ascend back into heaven? Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? And what did Christ say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. What were, the, what were they expecting? The kingdom. That's a, I mean, and, and, and Christ did not say, and this is interesting, this is one of the arguments with the covenant theologian folks. Christ didn't say, look, you guys got this whole eschatology thing all fouled up. Don't you realize that the Israel is done for? He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He doesn't deny that there's a future for Israel. He could have done that, straightened up this whole theological mess, and we wouldn't have all these arguments. But he didn't do that. Why? Because there is a future. There is a future for Israel. And this, is, this here is this, this, this time here in, the, in between. The Old Testament saints didn't see it. But if you believe the church is Israel, all right, as the covenant theologian folks do, what do you see? They would say this whole thing was seen in the Old Testament. Do you understand what they're going at now? Because there's one people of God. This is very important. This, this is going to make you land different places on, the, on where you believe the future for Israel is. But the way, way to understand the church is an intercalation. It's a break in the calendar. Daniel 70 weeks. Remember that prophecy? Yeah. What do you have? Well, we have 69 weeks up to what? Messiah the Prince will be cut off. Well, what about number 70? Where's that come in? Well, that comes in over here. God's not done yet. Now, if you're a covenant theologian person, you've got to completely redefine all of these terms and redefine what Israel is and say, well, it's a spiritual thing and, and God's kingdom is not literal, it's uh, spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. That's all it is. It's just a spiritual kingdom now. No, God promised Israel, and this is the, this is the thing. I took a class with John Walver, who's like the grandfather of eschatology. All right? And... One of the classes he did said the problem with 
the covenant theological viewpoint is what do you do about all the land promises in the Old Testament? What did God promise Israel? A land. And what did he give them? Boundaries. He said your land is going to go from here to here and from there to there. Has Israel ever gotten that land? No. So did God lie? Well, that was a conditional promise. You know, if they were to obey, then they would get the... No, you can't go there because if you go to Deuteronomy 32 and 33, Moses said, if you keep God's laws, you will go in the land, he will bless you. But you're not going to do that, but someday God's going to bring you back to the land and fulfill the promises. You've got land promises. Heaven does not have the river Euphrates in it. But the land grant to Israel did. All right? You've got land. You've got a physical spot. You know, you've got real estate that Israel has been promised. So when they went back in uh, 1948, the land is not the bounded... No, it isn't. Okay. The bounded land would include, <laughs> include the countries of Jordan, most of, a lot of Syria. Um, it would include parts of Saudi Arabia. It would include most of Iraq. Okay. They haven't got that yet, have they? Doesn't look too promising either from the human perspective. But they're going to get the land that God has promised them. I have another question. Um, or, okay. I totally agree, always have thought of Israel and the church is separate, not metaphorically or actually the same. But I have, on the other hand, thought of many aspects of Israel and the promises God gave to them and so forth as being a prototype for the church. Ways for the church. Um, I would be careful going there because a lot of times what people do, and this is a pet peeve of mine, is they take passages in the Old Testament where God's making promises to Israel and claiming them for themselves. You've got to be careful doing that. That goes back to how do you interpret Scripture. I guess, okay, All right. that's true. I guess I need to be even more specific. Whereas then the chosen people was Israel. Were Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, now his chosen people it's is the church. church. Right. And God is working through a people. God always works yes. through a people. Right. In that case, there is, there, yeah, there, there is a similarity. What I mean, there's, prom there's promises in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but, you know, I always like getting in trouble. Um, there was a verse, you know, um, Jeremiah 29, I think it's 11. I have good thoughts for you, says the Lord, not evil thoughts. to give you a hope and a future and all that. Who's that given to? That's not you. You don't get that verse. That's not, that doesn't belong to you. Belongs to Israel. It's a, Israel. God's promising Israel in Jeremiah 29:11. What is He promising them? He's promising a 70-year captivity at the end of which. What is He going to do? He's going to restore them, and He has a future and a hope. And He says, you know, it looks bleak now because you're going off into captivity. But I have good thoughts for you, not evil thoughts. I'm going to give you a future and a hope. That's to Israel. So don't claim that as your your verse because that's not your verse. That's a promise to Israel. Now, I'm going to put it. Is there a principle behind it that says God has good plans for us? Yeah. Yes, there's a principle. But that verse is not your verse. That doesn't belong to you. That belongs to Israel. That was a promise given to Israel. If you want a promise, go to Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to them that love God. 
to those who are the called according to his purpose. That, that's the verse to latch on to. All right, you understand what I'm trying to get at here? So okay. he's talking to Israel, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have plans for us. But that particular promise was given to a group of Israel in a context of restoration, not because you know you have troubles in your life and you need uh, you know help getting through it. That, that was a that was a promise to Israel. Now there's a principle behind it, right? But that's not my verse. That's not my promise. So you've got to be careful. you always got to say, who is he talking to? And is that promise given to a particular group of people? If so, that promise belongs to them, not me. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, who's that given to? Israel. Yes and no. I know where you come from, I think. Yes and no. Yes in the sense that the, the Old Testament is a, is a series of pictures. It's history. But there are principles underlying things in the Old Testament that are eternal, right? Um, the, the difficulty is when you, take, when you look at the Old Testament and God has given a promise to a group of people, then you say, well, I'm going to take that promise for my own. Well, wait a minute. I, you can't do that. Because that's not given to you. That's not your promise. However, he won't say the same thing God reveals the word to you, though. And, then, and, that, and that's where you start going down this allegorical versus literal hermeneutic. And there are people, there, there, there are valid, there are Christian people, good, godly people. If you're claiming a principle, fine. If you're claiming a literal promise, I would argue that that's not valid. Yeah. You know, we can slog you know, through this all day. But I'm, I'm just saying that, that when you look at the literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic. Now, now there, are there certain principles in Psalms that you can just grab onto? Well, yeah, because that... That, God's not making a promise necessarily to David. David says, you know, God, you know when I, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmness shows his handiwork and his worship. That's, that's, it doesn't matter what age you're in. I'm not picking up stuff. And Proverbs. Yeah. Well, the Jeremiah 29 11 one, I, I, that, that, I'm just saying that's a personal peeve of mine. Because a lot of people claim that and say, well, you know, God made this promise that he has good thoughts for me and not evil. And it's like, well, if you want to say that from Romans 8, 28, that's valid. If you're going to go to 29, 11, he's not talking to you. He's talking to his people Israel. He's going to restore them to the land. That's, that's the context in which that's given. Now, is there a basic principle that says God has good plans for his people? Sure. Sure. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. Yeah. Right. The nature of God is different. It's the same. I mean, God is God. So there's certain principles underlying all of his promises. But let's be careful to make sure that we don't grab, and this is, what, this is the problem, why I'm, why I'm bringing this out and getting on this little rabbit trail, is this is what the covenant theologian people do. They take promises specifically given to Israel and claim them for themselves. 
And when you do that, you can, wind your, you can get in a mess. Because the problem is, what do you do about all the curses to Israel? Well, they don't claim those. They claim the promises, but they don't, they don't go with the curse part. Well, it, you get both, right? I mean, if you're going to claim the promise, you've got to claim the curse as well. But they don't claim the curses, they claim the promises. So you've got to be careful. I'm just saying, when it comes to claiming promises in Scripture, make sure you have a valid claim to that promise. Right? In the New Testament, any, there are equivalent things. Oh yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, most of these principles you find in the Old, they're equivalent things in the New. In the Old, it's... Jeremiah 29, 11, and the new, it's Romans 8, 28. All right, claim, claim, claim the promises God's given to you and claim them. But, but be careful before you just say, well, you know, I like this verse out of, you know, some Old Testament passage when it's not even talking to you, it's not even talking about you. It's given in a completely different context to a group of people. Be careful claiming that as your own. All right, now can you find some comfort and solace in that there's a principle that God may be um, revealing about himself there? Sure you can. And that, in fact, that's why the Old Testament was given, right? As an example. Is, is you you want to know if God's faithful to his people? Well, look at the Old Testament, right? Is God faithful to his people? Absolutely. Is there a principle you can derive from that? Absolutely. But don't take a promise given to a man or a group of people in the Old Testament and say, I'm going to claim that promise as my own promise. Right. And they're equivalences. And the reason, again, I don't want to confuse people in here, but the reason we're talking about this is because this is going to make you go one of two directions. Israel is the church. We get all the promises. Um, there's no future for Israel. And the church is seen as a, as a different thing than, if you go this other way and see the church in Israel is distinct, the church is alien, exile, we have a different role in the world. It's going to color how you perceive church, how you view your role in society as, as the church. It, it, it's, all going to, it's going to make you go in one of two directions. Now there are certain little places you can land, but you're going to go that way, you're going to go that way. And, and that's why this is important to talk about. Um, but let's look at this thing here. It, it's, not, it's not the church. I mean, Israel is not the church. Um, the promises are different. When you look at the promises to Israel, what did they revolve around? God's promises to Israel. Land. Land. Land and a nation and a nationality, right? I mean, look at it. What did God promise Abraham? Get thee up, get thee out, I'm going to give you a land. Now, how did Abraham understand that? Oh, God's talking about a heavenly city. How would he have understood that? land because he got up and what did he do he went. Yeah, he went and after he split with Lot and God talked about, uh, took him up on the mountain and God told him I want you to look around and everything you see is yours now what was he looking at heaven he was looking at land right he was looking at real estate a, a location God promised Abraham a land and God promised Abraham a nation right People, descendants. And then when it came time for David, what did God promise David? He gave, promised him a throne and a kingdom. Now what does that mean? How would David have understood that? A throne and a kingdom. 
the, 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 the rub in all of this, when you, when you sort through this, is you've got problems when you're trying to make the church Israel because what do you do with all these land promises? And you, it's even compounded when you go to places, any one of the minor prophets almost, you can go to, and God is saying, I'm going to take you out of the land, but in the last days, I'm going to bring you back into the land. Now, how would you interpret that? What it said. But if you're covenant, you've got to say, well, God's going to take them out of the physical land, but he's going to restore them to a spiritual land. Where's that? And if you were a Jew at that time listening to Micah or listening to Joel or listening to Amos, how would you have understood what they were saying? Oh, we're going to be taken out of this land, but we're going to get a heavenly land someday. No, you would have understood it as land. That's how you would understand it. He promised them a kingdom and God promised God promised Israel an earthly kingdom right. with earthly boundaries ruled over by a king. Which would be Jesus. Yeah. So they, they And they're gonna get that. In the thousand years they're Yes. God's gonna literally fulfill every promise he made to Israel. We'll talk about that in eschatology. You're just going to have to wait for a few weeks. Because we get on that, we'll never get through this. All right? But the point is, God's going to fulfill his promises. He made literal promises to Israel. Nowhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament does he invalidate those promises. Nowhere does Christ hint that, well, you guys are all messed up. You know, really the kingdom is completely spiritual and there is no literal kingdom at all. No, he, he, always, under, he always helps them understand, yeah, there's going to be a time when God restores his people, when God restores his nation, but now's not that time. That's a future time when God will turn again to his people. So we, the, the thing is, when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, you see all the promises revolving around land, revolving around an earthly possession, revolving around an earthly king, a kingdom. That's, those are all the promises. But when it comes to the church, what does God promise the church? Land? No, we have heaven. Now, even though God promised Israel a land, does that mean he can't promise them a land and also they can have heaven as well at some point? No, it doesn't, right? Because what's going to happen at the end of the kingdom? Everybody is going to go into the new eternal state, right? Where there's a new heaven and new earth and a new Jerusalem and everything will be made new, all right? But the church has never, the church has never been promised real estate by God. Did God ever promise the church, I'm going, you're going to take over the world and you're going to, you know, have these boundaries and you're, no. We're always seen as what? Strangers, pilgrims, aliens, we're not of this world, we're looking for a new heaven, a new earth. We're looking for a spiritual Jerusalem, not an earthly one. We're, we're not looking for something down here. We're looking for something over there. So when you look at the promises, God gave two distinct sets of promises. One to Israel for a land, a kingdom, a future. He's given spiritual promises to the church. We are to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. What did Christ say? Lay not up for yourself treasure on earth. So the promises are different. 
when you look at them. Yeah. The seed is different. Abraham's physical seed refers to what? Israel. Israel. Now, is there is there in that a promise of the future Messiah? Sure. Galatians talks about that. But when God told Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, how would Abraham have understood that? Well, there's going to be a spiritual people that... No, he would have understood what? Offspring. In fact, the bulk of Genesis is given over to Abraham trying to have a son for a physical existence, right? And he gave God a hand. He said, well, God's taking a long time. I'm going to help him out. And so now he get Ishmael out of the deal. But Abraham understood that, no, there's going to be a people come from me. Nations and kings are going to come from me. He understood that. Whereas in our case, Abraham's spiritual seed refers to the church as a physical seed and a spiritual seed. It's not one or, it's not an either or at the both and. This is very important. It's not that Abraham either has a physical seed or he has a spiritual seed. Rather, he has both a physical seed and a spiritual seed. Follow? Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I think about it in my head is like, well, God, as a creator, created the physical earth. Like, it's physical, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. here. So is that why they say the physical Jerusalem? Because it's like, oh, God, is physical? Or am I, like, not getting that right? Okay, I don't understand the question. Um, I mean, if, you know, like, you're saying, like, we think of things above, but, like, they think of things below, like, as in, like, a new Jerusalem. The covenant people? Yeah. No, the covenant people say that, that there is no physical, it's all spiritual now. They say it's all spiritual. All right? And I had a big argument with a guy for 30 minutes in a class where he was trying to argue, look, it's an it's a either or. Either the kingdom of God is physical or it's spiritual. And I'm saying, no, it's a both and. And he said, no, it's an either or. I said, no, it's a both and. So you're saying it is both. It's both. It's both. Yeah, there's a physical, literal Jerusalem that God's going to give Israel, but we have a new Jerusalem in, in Revelation that is our home. Yes. All right? It's a both and. That, this, is, this, is, this is the crux of it. And that's why I said there are many, what I see as prototypes yeah. of the church within the Israel context. There is some there. There are some. Right. But, but understand, it's a both and. It's not an either or. Because he was arguing, well, when Christ came along and said, well, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, that's, that's, that's the watershed passage to him where Christ is saying, look, I have no literal kingdom down here. It's all of the next world. Well, no, Christ is, there's two kingdoms. There's the spiritual kingdom, which we are part of, right? But that does not mean there's not going to be a literal future kingdom for Israel. It's a both and. It's not an either or. Okay? So does Abraham have a physical seed referring to Israel? Absolutely. Did God make promises to that physical seed? Yes. Is he going to fulfill them? Well, yes. If he doesn't, he's not God, right? He's a liar. So, yes. Is there a spiritual seed? Sure. Romans talks about that. All who believe are of the seed of Abraham. In what sense? Well, as Abraham was saved by faith, how are we saved? By 
faith. So Abraham was the father of all who believe by faith. Alright? It's a both and. It's not an either or. The, um, the births are different. The beginning was different. When did Israel begin? Well, um, some say, you know, the, the old covenant of Israel was really at Sinai, but before that, where did, where did Israel come from? They, they had a beginning, right, with Abraham. Mm -hmm. The Jews began with Abraham. The Jewish nation, all right, began with him. Now, was every descendant of Abraham a Jew? No. no. You had Isaac and Ishmael. What was its child of promise? Isaac. Isaac. You had Jacob and Esau. Which one was the child of promise? Jacob. Jacob. So not, everyone, not every descendant of Abraham was a Jew. But the Jewish nation descended from Abraham. All right? And it was, Israel was born in Sinai in the Old Covenant. God codified a, a series of laws that they were to, to, to use to govern themselves as a nation, as a group of people, as a distinct group of people. When was the church born? Pentecost. It didn't exist prior to Pentecost. Do you understand that? It's not that at Pentecost, God took Israel and morphed it into the church. The church was born at Pentecost. It began in Acts 2. Prior to that, it didn't exist. Israelites became what they were by what? How do you, how are you, how do you define a Jew today? Your pedigree, right? How do you become a Christian? How do you become part of the church? By spiritual birth, not physical birth, right? So the births are different. You're born a Jew by virtue of your descendancy, by virtue of your ancestry. You become a child of God, a member of the church, by virtue of a spiritual birth. So you're born differently. The nationality. Israel is part of the earth. It's part of the earth system. It was a nation. It had a king. It had boundaries. It had a series of laws to govern it. Where are we? Well, we belong to heaven. And when it comes to our relationship with the world, how are we seen in our relationship with the world in the New Testament? We're visiting. We're strangers. We're exiles. We're aliens. We don't belong here. Alright? What did Christ say? You're not of the world, right? We're not of this, this system down here. We don't belong here. We, we, are, angel, we are strangers. Our job is not to take over the world for Jesus. We're to be salt and light. We're not, this is not our home. Peter talks about us being strangers and exiles and aliens. And Paul in Philippians says our citizenship is not on earth. Where is it? In heaven. Heaven. We belong to a different world. We, we, this is a, this is, we're to be strangers down here. This is not our home. I, I, they're smoking weed, I tell you. I don't know where they're getting it. They're, they're, I, don't, I don't understand. Really, I listened to a guy, it was not too long ago. He was just raving on about how wonderful the world, you know, the church is, you know, the church in Africa is just going to take over that continent for Jesus. And I said, well, it doesn't look that way to me. It looks pretty bleak. And what did Christ say? In the end time, things are going to get worse and worse. So how does the kingdom get established? Because we take over the world for Jesus, clean it up and give it to him? No, it's because he comes back and takes it. That's how he gets it. 
Yeah. He's the one cleaning it up, not us. Yeah. You know. But Israel belonged to the world system. To and the idea of world system there is they had a they were a nation. They were had land. They had boundaries. They had kings. We don't have that. We're different. Um, our relationship to the Father is different. For example, God is never seen in the Old Testament as the Father of the Israelites. This is the thing that blew the Israelites' mind. When Christ came and said, talks about his Father, they didn't relate to that because no Jew would ever describe God as their Father. They would never do that. It was, it was incomprehensible to them that God would be their Father. But yet, what is God to us? He's our Father. We, we call him Abba, Daddy. And what did Christ say? Our Father. He doesn't say, after this manner, therefore pray ye, my Father. It's a, our Father. Christ is our Father. And, or not Christ, but God is our Father. In what sense is God is our Father? He is the Father of our heavenly family, right? We are adopted into his family. We become part of his family. That is a spiritual family. He is our Father. The Israelites never understood God as being Father. That was the last thing from their mind. God is being Father. It just, they, they didn't do that. Is that why they say they're always waiting for Messiah? Yeah. Well, we're going to see that in the next slide. Israel is now under divine judgment. In what sense is Israel now under divine judgment? Well, what did they do? They rejected the Messiah. Not only did they reject him, they crucified him, right? Now, well, everybody did, but, but the nation Israel are the ones that crucified their Messiah. And so, when they did that, it's not that God said, okay, the promises, no, void, scratch them, no. He didn't, he didn't erase the promise. But now Israel is under divine judgment. You see that in Romans chapter 11. And how long are they going to be under divine judgment? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be fulfilled. There's going to come a day when God will once again turn to Israel. But until then, Israel is under divine judgment. They are not God's chosen people in the sense that God is working through them at this time. And what was the condition for them to receive the kingdom? What was the condition? Repent and recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. Did they do that the first time? No, they didn't. So why does God bring along the 70th week here? To break them. And Zechariah says, what are they going to do? They're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They're going to recognize their Messiah. And as a nation, they're going to turn again to their Messiah. And that's when they get the kingdom. But right now, Israel is under divine judgment. They have been set aside. They have been put on the back burner. And God is now working through his people, the church. But someday God will once again turn to his people, Israel, to fulfill the promises according to his own plan. The church is not under divine judgment right now. Are you under divine judgment? Are we under divine judgment? No, we're not. Israel is. Israel was God's servant. The relationship between Israel and, and God was seen as Israel being God's servant. In the church, we are not servants. We are what? Children. Children. Sons. We're sons of God. We're not slaves. We're sons. God is our master, but we are... Not only his servant, but his, or slave, but his son. We are called the sons of God. The relationship is totally different. 
The relationship with the Son is different. In what sense? Well, how is Israel pictured throughout the Old Testament? It's pictured as an adulterous wife, right? Hosea, the, book, the entire book of Hosea is, is that picture. Israel is seen as being betrothed to God and instead of being faithful to God, what do they do? They went off and played the harlot by following after all kinds of other gods. By following all the Baals and Ashtaroth and all of that. And they're seen as an adulterous wife. How does God view the church? Does he view the church as an adulterous wife? What's the church seen as? A bride. A virtuous bride. A chaste virgin. Different picture there, isn't it? In fact, Christ is going to come back. One of the great images of, of the church is the bride of Christ. And he's going to come back someday and take his bride to be home with him, right? That's the imagery that he uses. We are the bride of Christ, Revelation 19. And the bride is seen as being arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for that is the righteousness of the saints. We're not seen as an adulterous wife. We're seen as a chaste virgin awaiting the bridegroom. Different picture altogether. Christ was a stumbling stone to Israel. In what sense? In what sense was he a stumbling stone? Didn't fit the expectations, right? So what did they do? They stumbled over it. It was in the way. It was a stone that was in the way. And they, 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 they missed the whole point of it. I, you ever read about the, the building of the Taj Mahal? You know why it was built? Memorial. It was a memorial to some guy's wife, you know? And uh, what happened, and I, I forget how it all goes, but they're building this massive, gorgeous building, and his wife was in a coffin, and somebody threw the coffin away with his wife in it because it was in the way. Yeah. They didn't... <laughs> So the, the building was built to this woman, you know, the, the coffin that was there, that there was supposed to be the central theme. Somebody just tossed it, I guess, or they, they didn't know what it was, you know. So the whole point, Israel, Christ was a stumbling block. He was not what they wanted him to be. And they stumbled over it. They, they, they just didn't see it. But to, to the church, who is Christ? He is the chief cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? Yeah, it's, it's the first stone you set and it gives the angles for the entire building. And you get the cornerstone wrong, the whole thing is cockeyed. Christ is our chief cornerstone. He is the, and, and it, could be, it could be seen in two ways. Either one, the corner being the foundation stone, or it could be the capstone, the last stone you put on that completes the building. He's not a stumbling block to us. He is the chief cornerstone. Christ is Israel's Messiah and King. He's the King, the ruler. He's their Messiah, the anointed one. What is he to us? The bridegroom. Now, is he our king spiritually in a sense? Yes. But what's the imagery that we see of Christ in the New Testament? He is our bridegroom. We're waiting for the bridegroom to come back. Yes, it's, it's, it's an intimate relationship. It's not, it's not just he's the king way up there on the throne. He's the bridegroom. Um, the relationship to the Holy Spirit is different. In what sense? Well, did the Holy Spirit come upon Old Testament believers? Sure, once in a while he did, right? Samson, uh, David, we know that. Um, he came on for certain activities, certain tasks that they were called to do. But was the Holy Spirit a permanent indwelling presence? 
No. In the church, what is he? He's the comforter. So when you come to know the Lord, you have the permanent indwelling, and I would say irreversible indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's one of the differences. What happened at Pentecost? What did the Holy Spirit do? He came and indwelled us. You have the indwelling presence of God in you at this point in time. Something the Old Testament saints had no concept of. But we do. We have it. We have the indwelling presence of God. Totally different than the Old Testament. He lives inside each one of us, empowers us. The temple is different. In what sense? Well, what did Israel have? They had a temple, right? They had a place where they would go to God, to go to worship God. There was a, a building. It was made out of stones and gold and curtains and stuff. Do we have a temple that we go to? We are the temple, right? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And we are a, and Peter uses this, we are a spiritual temple, a spiritual building. We're not, we don't go to a physical building. We have a spiritual building. The temple is different. We're not Israel. We're not Israel. Um, I got to quit there because if we get onto this, we'll go another 30 minutes and they'll throw us out of the room. Here's the point. 20,000 feet. When you look at the scripture, all the scripture, you take it from the literal, grammatical, historical perspective, you are inexorably forced to conclude that Israel and the church are two distinct bodies. Two distinct people of, of God. They are not the same thing. The church did not take the replacement or not replace Israel. The church and Israel are distinct and different. And because they're distinct and different, that's going to drive how we view the church, it's going to drive how we view end-time events, it's going to drive how we view our role in the world. Okay? So hopefully that's made sense. Any, any comments or questions? Is this, is this making sense yes. as we're working through it? Yes. All right. Well, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day that you've given. Um, boy, it's hard to get our heads around some of this stuff. And it's just because there's so many things that we need to consider in this. And sometimes it's hard to bring it all together in a, in a package that we can get our heads around and understand. But I pray that you'd help us as we ponder these truths and as we study the word for ourselves that we may know what it is you would have to say for us and that we would understand really what the church is and what it's all about and what we should be doing. And we thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen.